these things have been known to explode. Yeah. But they've usually exploded when people are really pushing them to yeah. conditions where they probably shouldn't go. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Cosmic Cast. You're here with me, the refreshing morning breeze that is Rick Bibber here. We also have uh, the warm summer's mist, Marissa Lowe. And uh, the cold, clammy hand that is Dr. John (laughs) Perna Fisher. Hello there. And today we have a guest for you all. (laughs) The morning cup of Joe, Dr. David Neve. Hi. Hello. Great to be here. Good. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Yes. So, would it be fair to say you're an experimental petrologist? Uh, Yeah, definitely. So, that wasn't where I thought I'd start out, but that sort of seems to be where I've ended up. But... um, yeah, I like to try and keep my hand in some geochemistry, some volcanology as well. But I guess, yeah, experimental petrology is my and, main thing these days. And what got you to this point then? Where did you do your PhD and what was that in? Um, so I did my PhD in Cambridge in igneous petrology. So understanding really how magma chambers work. And that was just looking at natural rocks. Mm. So I did my, did my research looking at material from Iceland. Mm measuring crystals and melt inclusions pockets of liquid inside these crystals to try mm. and understand how magma chambers work um and i well, yeah was interested in where magma chambers are how they work um what happens before eruptions mm. um but then when i got towards the end of my phd i kind of realized our ability to understand these these processes was kind of limited mm. So we needed more, more information, more experiments, more, more experiments under controlled conditions to try and understand these natural materials. So yeah, that's what took me in an experimental direction. And so did you go from straight from your PhD to your position here in Manchester? No, no. So I, um, yeah, I finished up my PhD, was thinking around postdocs, um, what I could do, where I could do it. I was kind of interested in seeing some different new places. So I um, applied for a Humboldt Foundation postdoc, which mm-hmm. is a great scheme run by the German government for um, non-German nationals to go to Germany for a year or two. And I applied for one of those and went to Hanover in northern Germany, to, which is a real powerhouse of experimental petrology mm-hmm. to, to learn the skills, basically, to try and address these new questions. So yeah, I was there for a couple of years on the Humboldt, then wrote another project, stayed for a few more years, and then mm. along came this opportunity to, to move to Manchester. And so you're now, it's basically kind of like a tenure track position you have, I guess, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like a, a tenure track lectureship, um, mostly focusing on research to begin with, but then easing into more roles as, as time goes on. Mm. So yeah, hopefully picking up a lectureship in, in a couple of years' time, yeah. yeah. So how have you found that transition from pure postdocing through to, I guess, something a bit more permanent? Um, it's a big relief, actually. Yeah. I found you spend a lot of your time as a postdoc writing applications. Mm. And a lot of these applications are rejected. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the, the one that came along in Manchester was, you know, application seven or eight mm. or so. Now, each time you write an application, they get a bit better. You think, you know, you can use these rejections to think harder about what you want to do and why. Mm-hmm. 
So they're still a useful tool, but at some point it's quite useful to be able to actually do some research mm -hmm. rather than just writing yes, yeah, <laughs> about absolutely. wanting to do it. Yeah. So that's been a, a big relief for yeah. me. Oh, it's very stressful. Um, I mean, you know, so for the listeners out there, I'm only on fixed term contracts and again, like David, right, trying to write unsuccessfully thus far various proposals. So it is, uh, yeah, it can be very stressful and it can be quite demoralizing too. Um, I mean, I don't know how you, I mean, how, how, did you have any sort of coping mechanism or how did you find getting uh, so many rejections? Um, I think it really depends a lot on the nature of the rejection. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just, this is good. We don't have enough money to fund everyone. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, but if you get some useful feedback, you can think, oh, how, I, how can I make this mm -hmm. better? How can I do some of this work anyway? How can I collaborate with other people? Do this in a cheaper way, do it for free. Mm. Um, there are ways around that. What really is frustrating is when you just get a unhelpful review and uh, sort of or, or no reviews back, because mm. then you think, well, there goes a week, and yeah. I don't know how I can do it better next time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. mixed bags. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting insight. I mean, um, you know, I think. I guess a lot of people perhaps don't realize how difficult it is actually to pick up more permanent positions and that how highly competitive each advertised position can be. It's not quite like the 70s and 80s where you would just walk into a lectureship off the back of your PhD, mm. actually. So. so as a first year PhD student, I obviously haven't gone through this process before. Mm. Um, what is the general path to, say, a permanent position nowadays? Oh. It's a difficult question. Yeah, I'm sure it varies from person to yeah. person, but what, what's the general path? Well, I mean, I would say that in an ideal world, you would do, you know, one, maybe two postdocs and then try and find something permanent, either through writing your own project or just mm. getting a straight up lectureship. Mm. But, you know, I mean, a lot of my friends who are, who are in a similar position have done many years of postdocing. I mean, I've gone through quite a few years now myself and it kind of progressively becomes more difficult at a point as well. If you postdoc too many times, you get to a stage where I, I'm, 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 I don't know this, but it's what I've heard, um, where people start to become slightly more reluctant to employ you because they know you're looking for something more permanent. So they're unlikely to employ you if you're on your, say, sixth postdoc because they know you're only going to come there possibly for a year before you're actually going to move somewhere else to do a permanent position. Uh, but essentially, yeah, as John said, the, I guess the aim is you do a few postdocs and then you apply somewhere for a permanent position. Although having said that, I do know friends who've gone straight from their PhD to um, into a lectureship position. But in, in like, particularly in America, they've gone straight into teaching, straight in, and with very little time to do research. And actually, I think that having that little bit of time to just, just focus on research, build up some publications, experience some new cities and stuff has been quite a valuable experience, I think. Yeah, it can be quite disruptive, but there are two ways you can view it. One is, oh, all of these horrible hurdles you have to jump through to eventually get a permanent job. Or you can see the opportunities. You know, I, I went to Germany because there was a great scheme where I could get my own research independence very early. That was something I think that was very important and good fun. And then also, yeah, I, I have always wanted to live abroad. That was an opportunity to do, the, do that. Move to a new country, move to a new city, learn a new language. So, you know, advantages and disadvantages, but you can frame the question in different ways. I yeah, think. for sure. I definitely saw it as a very exciting opportunity to go and uh, live and work anywhere. Mm. I remember thinking after my PhD, well, this is great. I can literally go and work anywhere in the world, <laughs> which is quite an exciting thing, actually. So how did you enjoy living in Germany? 
Yeah, no, that was a great experience, actually. Um, Germany's a lot more different from the UK than I initially expected, but um, Hanover was a very welcoming city. I was in a very friendly institute in the university, um, which had very different specialisms from what I experienced during my PhD in Cambridge. So it was really a good opportunity to learn something completely new. Um, yeah, the research landscape in Germany is quite different, it seems, from in the UK. Um, research funding seems to be a lot more abundant, mm. <laughs> but permanent mean. contracts are much harder to come okay. by. So it means, you know, you have institutes with very few permanent staff, um, really sort of kept afloat by the by the PhD body. Yeah. But there's more money available to do that. So again, advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. Um, but I felt very, very welcome there. And um, it was a great opportunity to move to Manchester, something with a bit more sort of permanent oh, yeah. uh, prospects and the opportunity to maybe build something on the sort of five, ten year timescale. But I was quite sad to leave. Mm. But I'm still working very closely with people in Germany, yeah. involved in projects, writing new projects together, lots of collaborations. And yeah. actually, we'll be off to visit them again next month. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's a good reason, isn't it, to a post office to start to build some of those collaborations and long term relationships. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important part of it is you can then yeah start to build a wider network. You know, you can't be an expert in every tool, everything you might want to ever study or every method you might want to use so working in different places yeah helps build up this network and it's a very international community and the majority of people wherever they are usually seem pretty helpful you know they want to help they want to do yeah. good stuff despite whatever reviewer two says anyway well, yeah, there's always a reviewer two out there somewhere but, uh, where are they that's the question <laughs> you never know <laughs> So, uh, David, before you actually started your position here, I think I remember you saying to me um, that when you got the position, you didn't know that it was actually a tenure track position until after you actually got the position. Yeah. So I I, I, um, I saw this sort of four year fellowship advertised mm. and I saw that it had some the, the wording was uh, interesting, but it didn't strike me immediately that it was effectively a lectureship. Mm. And then I went to my interview, had my yeah. interview and then came came to the school here and had a had a chat with the head of school and mm. only then did i realize oh <laughs> it's better than i even thought <laughs> so <laughs> well may, maybe that helped maybe i was a bit more relaxed in the interview then <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> made, it a bit, made it a bit easier going yeah. um maybe that helped out a bit but yeah no very happy that that yeah that was in uh, fact better than i expected i mean i think it's quite nice that they sort of ease you into it so to speak instead of just um dropping like loads of different teaching modules on top of you and all mm. that kind of stuff it's a yeah it doesn't yeah so i i guess i'm a romantic i still have a very idealistic view of what a university mm -hmm. should be you know um i enjoy research very much i also enjoy teaching a lot and having contact with students mm. uh, and seeing them sort of learn and grow um but there's a big like administrative hurdle to cross when you're or sort of jump over when 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 doing a lot of teaching and i mm. think when you start in a new job you've got to learn how all the systems work you've got to learn the course when you have to digest all of that to be able to do that and do research mm -hmm. and write proposals mm -hmm. and write papers is really hard so i think i definitely want to be a lecturer i want to be a teacher mm -hmm. yeah. but i also quite glad that i can hopefully ease into that a bit yeah definitely yeah um, must, must be a, a huge help so are fellowships designed to be that sort of step between the postdocs and becoming a lecturer 
yeah, yeah. So I guess the key thing as about being a fellow, say, as opposed to a postdoc, is that you would have your own project. You're mm -hmm. doing your own okay. research independently of of somebody else. So I think that's that's the idea to help you build your independence and to be able to demonstrate that you can do that. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's that's yeah, that's the key point of a fellowship as opposed to a postdoc. Though many people within postdocs also have a lot of freedom to pursue their own ideas and I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are supportive of that too. So at the moment your role isn't just that you are you've come here and you're going to start doing your research you're actually setting up a, a lab is that right you have your own lab you're trying to basically put together uh yeah so um so i do experiments um at high pressures and high temperatures mm -hmm. so what do i mean by that so high temperatures maybe 1000 to 1200 degrees mm -hmm. temperatures of magma chambers pressures pressures of um, a few thousand bars. Okay. Um, so that's hundreds of megapascals, and these are the pressures and temperatures in in the in the crust, in in magma reservoirs. Mm. So um, I was using a piece of equipment called an internally heated pressure vessel in Hanover to do these experiments. Mm. Um, and at the moment in the UK, there isn't really a, a lab up and running using these. In okay. Edinburgh, they do some experiments in, in this kind of direction, but there's no one really kind of looking at magmatic processes. Mm. So I'm really keen to develop that here in Manchester, which, which was a big specialism for Manchester mm. back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, I'm kind of keen to, to re rekindle that. Mm. And actually, there's, um, there's some kit in the department that's been very... Uh, uh, graciously received from another university secondhand that will give us a, a bit of a leg up to doing so. Oh, so I'm in the process nice. of trying to trying to gather support and funds from the university mm. to get this set up. But things are looking promising yeah. so far, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're very cool type experiments. So you're, you're basically, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of creating your own rocks inside this vessel, which is tremendously cool. So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so it's very easy to do an experiment at, surface pressure you basically heat up some powdered rock in a controlled atmosphere and then then you you produce a rock but at surface pressure if you want to mm -hmm. look at what's going on in a magma chamber you need some confining pressure mm -hmm. you know magma chambers aren't at the surface they're they're deeper in the earth so you need you need um you need some way to confine that so what you what i do is you basically powder some kind of rock that uses your starting material or you mm -hmm. mix it up from chemicals oxides and carbonate powders you pack it into a capsule with which it doesn't react, so gold or platinum mm -hmm. or something like this, and you can seal that shut so it stays a more or less a closed system. Mm. Uh, and then the kind of experiments that I do is then you put that in a in a pressure vessel, uh, and you pressurize that with gas, an inert gas like argon, okay. which doesn't react. So you yeah. you you squeeze this capsule of of material to. 2,000 bars or something, which is mm. the equivalent of about, I don't know, six, seven kilometers of rock on top. Okay. Yeah. Just with gas, just yeah. with argon gas. And then you heat this up to create the conditions in a, in a magma mm. reservoir. And then you try and quench this. So that's like cool it down really quickly. And then you preserve the chemistry and the textures of the minerals and the liquids or the glasses. Um, so you can, yeah, create your artificial rock effectively yeah yeah that's awesome so how, how big are these uh, these these vessels um they're not that big so you know the 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 volume that you have that's at high pressures and high temperatures might only be about 
one centimeter in diameter and about two three mm. centimeters long so quite small um the whole apparatus itself is no bigger than a, a few meters squared a few meters cubed mm. so um so they're not that big really the challenge is you need a big block of big tube, heavy tube mm. of high you know high grade steel or other curious alloys to to keep the pressure in and that's yeah. that's the challenge but they're, they're not they're not so big I was going to say, do they, so the tubes withstand all that pressure then? Uh, yeah. And so when you get this sample out of this tube, yeah. what does it look like? Yeah, so when you put it in, you'd have a little, basically little shiny tube of gold or platinum mm. or something with your sample inside. And when you bring it out, you'll just see that that's been squeezed down mm. onto the sample. A bit like a sort of uh, a boiled sweet or yeah. something it looks <laughs> like when it comes out. Uh, and then you you just have to sort of cut that thing open or yeah, peel yeah. off the the gold and platinum and then you stick that in some resin or something you can polish it to then to then measure it on on a on various pieces mm. of kit yeah yeah and how does it take very long to do um so i think so most experiments you would only last maybe say some hours to a few days um and this is always a problem you know and we worry a lot about attaining equilibrium this is mm -hmm. a phrase that you'll hear a lot in the experimental world you know um the natural experiments the earth or wherever else run run over long time scales years decades millions of years even so there's lots of time for the chemical species to communicate with each other and reach something close to equilibrium now we obviously can't do that in a lab you know um both for practical reasons that you need some results within some reasonable length of time, but also mm -hmm. just, for example, keeping the pressure inside a pressure vessel for more than a week or so starts to get yeah. a problematic engineering challenge. So you try to run the experiments for as long as you can whilst still having this sort of practicality yeah. about it. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing I do know about some of these papers is that you can have often hundreds of different experiments and they can take years. I guess it's very easy to get bogged down into uh, the fine details, because I guess so. Am I right in thinking every time you're every time you're running an experiment, you're perhaps tweaking a different parameter to try and look at a behavioural relationship over you know, some various yeah, collection of factors? Yeah, if you're in kind of completely new terrain, you kind of have to find out where where you are in that. You know, mm. you, if you're in if you're looking at systems where we don't know much about the thermodynamics, you can't really do any. Um, any modeling beforehand to get mm. a rough idea where you might be in other systems where people have looked in more detail then you can you have some idea where you're heading mm. but yeah it, you it, it is a, it is quite a slow process it can be quite a slow process and one that can be prone to failure you know things are running at high temperatures high pressures things have to be sealed you know there's a lot of potential sources of failure here um so you often end up having to tinker and stuff with things, but I quite like that as well. That's there's like a sort of mechanical, physical. Yeah, I imagine side it's a lot more hands-on than some of the other aspects that we use. Mm. I guess. Yeah, yeah, sort of fiddling around, soldering bits of wire yeah. together, and fiddling with bits of ceramics to make things work. It's yeah, it can be quite satisfying, but yeah. also frustrating. Yeah, but I think that the, the the powerfulness of what you can learn from these things are tremendous. And so, to give a lunar example, I guess a lot of how we know 
that the moon's mantle is, is made of and the crystallization sequence of things like the lunar magma ocean come from these sorts of experiments. Mm. But as you say, because this is kind of like unknown territory, it's taken, it takes groups like many, many years in order to fully crystallize out the moon from, from start mm. to finish. Mm -hmm. And there are not that many papers out there, but just because it takes decades in some cases of various PhD projects amalgamated yeah. to get mm. these things done. So it's, it's, it's in a way, it's, it's a good sort of fundamental science tool, I guess. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Because, well, so what I realized in my PhD, you can make, you know, any number of natural measurements or measurements on natural samples, rather. And um, you might still struggle to interpret things, whereas quite often you can pose the question in a different way. And mm. even a handful of experiments would may not give you the absolutely correct answer, but they would give you an indication as to what was the case. Yeah, your example about the lunar magma ocean is like a classic example. A colleague of mine, Olivier Namour from Leuven, he was in Hanover with me for a while. He's done lots of experiments on mercury. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a, a body which some far as I'm aware of, we don't have any known material mm -hmm. from. Yep. But there's spectroscopic measurements from the messenger mission that he was able to then use to mix up starting compositions into mm -hmm. experiments to say something about what the structure and behavior of mercury might be like mm. based on experiments so you there's no way you could do that from a natural measurement mm -hmm. so it's yeah it's still it's it's a potentially very powerful tool it is and, and i guess also actually what's quite nice about it is that not only do you get the sort of top high level pretty sexy stuff like understanding mercurian geology but also it's just some of the more basic things like how do elements partition into minerals and very sort of basic questions that perhaps don't necessarily get into nature but are still so fundamental for everything else that that we do in terms of geochemistry well and there are huge aspects that are just still completely well not say not completely unknown but are still very uncertain oh, huge gaps yeah um so so i think zoltan was moaning about this a few weeks ago how <laughs> he was getting frustrated that there weren't enough of these experiments for some of the systems that he looks yeah at. so he's looking at kind of <laughs> alkaline rocks in the canary islands and there are hardly any experimental results published on these things yeah it seems amazing really that there are still these huge gaps in knowledge but i guess I mean, why is that do you think is that just because it's not as easy to get funding for some of these less sexy concepts i think so yeah so a lot of the time you need a big idea to get to get things funded and then people end up chasing these big ideas mm. i think the most powerful way is try and work out a big idea but make sure you collect as much basic information mm -hmm. along the way as you can like you say about things like how elements partition between different liquids and minerals and these kinds of things um yeah because most of the stuff that i've been doing recently has been looking at the evolution of basalts and you think basalts on earth are one of the most probably the most studied igneous rock and we must understand everything but there are still big gaps in our understanding um and a lot of the time people think if there's some tool which enables us to produce some model you know computer model of what's going on then we must understand it but then of course the computer model is only as good as the experimental data on which it was calibrated so yeah so it, it there is a challenge but it's um yeah try as many birds with as few stones as possible mm. i think that's the the key approach uh, so is part of what you do is it taking these models and testing whether what they predict is actually correct uh using the machinery itself then uh, yeah, so quite a lot of what I've been doing up until recently was looking at ways of estimating the depths at which magma chambers are, mm. or magma reservoirs are, where, and I did this by looking at the depths and pressures at which a, type of a mineral called clinoperoxine would mm. crystallize. 
Um, and this is basically because the higher the pressure, the more sodium mm. you put into clinoperoxine crystals. That's basically the, the premise behind this. So I used a load of experimental data to, to test models that were out there, find out what their limitations were, and then refine them. And then hopefully produce a model which is still a model, so it's imperfect, mm. but it's hopefully less wrong than what was out there before. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so there's a bit of testing models and then a bit of developing new ones as well, yeah. So uh, what are the main things you're hoping to use your lab for? Um, so something that I'm sort of really interested in now is, well, how, well, we know that the mantle is like, is really compositionally heterogeneous on Earth. We know that it has regions of different composition, mm -hmm. regions of different mineralogy. Um, something I'm quite interested in looking at is, does it have regions of different redox? So we know that as you subduct material back into the mantle, mm -hmm. um, the subduction zones, you bring in material with different composition and mm -hmm. material that's potentially quite oxidized. Does this yeah. material then change the redox of the mantle? Can we see that? Um, and to do this, we have to look at the products of volcanoes because they provide us a way of sampling the mantle. Mm -hmm. But the tools we have at the moment to look at this are quite... You know, they don't all work in all different settings. They have quite specific characteristics. So I'm quite interested in developing new models for this. And th and the lab would come into this because I want to do experiments at different redox conditions to then create new tools to, to investigate that. And that's that's one of the, the key aims of, of this kind of setting up of a lab. So how far down the line are you in terms of... Uh, have you still got to procure some of your new instruments? And uh, have you got a space carved out already? Yeah, so um, there are some rooms in the basement uh, down here, which are which used to be a Drosophila breeding lab, so fruit fly breeding <laughs> lab, apparently, <laughs> back in the day, and have been empty for a few years now. Um, so those have been sort of allocated for this for this new lab, mm. opposite the Rock Deformation Lab. That's a lab which actually used very similar techniques to yeah. address very different yeah. questions about rock physics mm. and rock behavior. So that's a really great synergy, actually, having those labs together. Mm. So we've got that space, and the kind of the case for funding and the case for renovation is currently sitting with the faculty. So yeah. fingers crossed that we'll hear something back soon and can get that get those works underway. Um, and then I can start thinking, once we've got a space, then I can think about trying to put in newer equipment yeah. as well. Um, yeah, like I said, this kind of equipment like I was using in Hanover, that would be the real the real long-term goal what's the maximum pressure for these kind of equipment how deep can you go um well that's an interesting question depends who you ask so safety here is a big issue yeah <laughs> so these things have been known to explode yeah but they've usually exploded when people are really pushing them to yeah. conditions where they probably shouldn't go so is that because so, they just try and get the pressure so high, there's so much gas in it that the machine itself can't? Yeah, exactly. And after things, are, so most of the experiments I'd want to maybe up to say 3,000 bars or so, which is equivalent to a depth of about say 10 kilometers or so. Okay, yeah. You can quite safely operate up to 5,000 bars mm. maybe, mm -hmm. which is, yeah, like 15, 16 kilometers, something like that. Yeah, that's still amazing. Really. Yeah, yeah, more pressure. People have done experiments at higher pressure. But then you get closer to the, the to the limits of things, and what we actually, yeah. what well, the incidents that I know of have been basically when things have been pressurized and depressurized. Eventually, the the the, the steels work harden, 
and then fail. They just yeah. crack, basically. So if you stay well within their notional limits, you know, if you only ever go to half of the maximum pressure, yeah. then you're not going to be a, yeah. not going to be having too much problem. But mm -hmm. some people in the past used to go up to yeah, 10 kilobars or so. But it's also a question of cost. You know, a valve that's safe to 10 kilobars or 10,000 bars costs three times one for five five thousand mm. bars because so, yeah. you want to go deeper is it these uh, diamond anvils and things like that is that so 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 the kind of hierarchy is sort of you have a furnace for doing stuff at one atmosphere so mm -hmm. the surface then pressure vessels for say you know up to say five thousand bars or something like that mm. and above that you use something called a piston cylinder okay right which yeah. is basically where you put your capsule in something a deformable solid mm -hmm. something like a salt mm -hmm. or something like that which is solid but when you squeeze it, it evenly distributes the pressure. Yeah. But those only really work above about 5,000 bars. Right. Uh, but those can go up to uh, much higher pressure, so 40,000 bars or something like that. So that can take you into the upper mantle, and then mm -hmm. to go to greater depths, you use something called a multi-anvil, which I always think sounds extremely cool, <laughs> um, which have these, basically you, you put blocks of tungsten carbide in a in a press and then you can squeeze a sample and then from there you go to a diamond anvil cell which is basically where you have two two pointy diamonds yeah, yeah. and you squeeze them together um but as you get smaller and smaller the size of the sample gets smaller, yeah, and, smaller. and smaller so i can yeah. use something that's a you know a centimeter long and a couple mm. of millimeters in diameter but a diamond anvil mm. cell experiment yeah. is you know a fraction of a millimeter yes yeah. yeah. and i guess that these are the guys that are doing work on like core mantle boundary stuff aren't they yeah it blew my mind when I saw someone preparing one of these experiments. So you just get two diamonds and you put them in a little rig made of steel and you apply the pressure with a screwdriver. <laughs> you know, so you're creating and then you heat it up with a laser to get it to the right temperature. Yeah. But the pressure you have just applied just by screwing That's some screws crazy. together. That, it seemed somehow beautifully low-tech. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that breeds some misconceptions in my head about how the earth works. Like, is me screwing a screwdriver as much mass and pressure as the core <laughs> and the mantle. So, yep. Between yeah. the tips of two diamonds, yeah. then, okay. then yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. That's very cool. Well, um, it's been amazing having you on, David. And uh, just before we, we unfortunately have to end the podcast, we, we have a final question for you. And uh, we, we ask all our guests this question just to make, you, make sure you know you're not special. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, if you weren't involved in the, this area of research that you're currently in, is there anything scientifically or outside of science that you would would be particularly interested in? Yeah, so, so there are really two things that drew me into academia. One was the kind of sense of problem solving. Mm -hmm. You know, you're trying to you're trying to sort of optimize systems, trying to find answers, trying to re you know gather information to find a a better way of doing things, a new idea. Mm. And the other was for me working in an environment that feels kind of progressive in a sense that you're doing work, which hopefully in some sense is beneficial to society at large. Yeah. Um, creating new information, teaching new generations. So I think those are the things that are most important to me. Um, but if I were not in academia, I'm not, I'm not so sure what I do. I don't know. Certain things appeal to me. I don't know. Um, working in something like the railways or something like yeah. that, which involves like, you know, looking at complicated systems, but also doing something which is hopefully generally useful yeah, for people. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd love to work in the railways. Uh, appreciative, you know, so 
Yeah, this kind of thing. It'd probably still be pu public sector of some yeah. kind. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely feel the same. If I wasn't doing academia, I'd definitely want to do something in the realm of public service. Yeah. yeah. Be great. Well, you just <laughs> want the little hat, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> and a whistle. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, David, thank you very much for yeah, coming on. Welcome. And we'll definitely have to get you on again. Yes. Particularly once your lab is uh, up and running and you're starting yep. to crank out results, we'd definitely be yep. well, cool you to know get you back where I am. on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cool.